Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 30 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, episode 30. 30! I, I think we can call this a cryon-free edition. Chiron. Chiron free. Chiron free. Chiron or Chiburn. I I can't tell the difference. (laughs) I think if you check the bottom of your screen while looking at this, the the crawl across the bottom, the Chiron will say something glowing about us. And if you could print that up and deliver that to me in an envelope, maybe every day, (laughs) you'd be the president. (laughs) I'd be a happy camper. (laughs) Uh, So it's, let's see, it's Tuesday, August 8th, 8-8. Or as I like to say, uh, classes minus 22 days. Yeah. Wow, that's right. Yeah, I think we do have some uh, course prep to do. Shh. Just because we're teaching in the same section. I, I got this annoying email from the associate dean the other day about turning the in worst. my syllabus. <laughs> can worst. I complain to somebody? <laughs> you can. Take it up with the uh, the academic affairs guy. Isn't That's uh, yes. This Chesney guy, right? Yeah, these are all me. Uh, uh, seriously, all roads lead to Bobby at the University of Texas School of Law. So anyway, it's send about... Send your complaints. Seriously, it's 2.30 Central Time on the 8th. Um, not the the noisiest day in national security news, but still, Bobby, a lot going on. There's a ton going on since last we met. In, uh, including a large uh, development that we won't spoil until later in Game of Thrones. That I got to say, I we got to breeze through this national security law stuff so we can... You, you might say we need to burn through it. Oh, very good. Let's let's do, let's burn through it and then charge right through that. Well, I should I should stop. We were trying to be respectful to those of you, those of you who have not watched the most recent Game of Thrones. What episode. are you doing? First of all, yeah, what, what what you do on Sunday night? Secondly, or Monday, you can trust us. We're not going to spoil anything. We will talk the law before we get to that. So, what are we going to talk about by way of law? We've got a number of pretty interesting developments, each one of which we'll try to give. Uh, a, a grab a, a, a sense of what was going on in them. Sure. So on Monday, right yesterday, the the district court in Seattle had an interesting ruling denying summary judgment um, for the defendants. These two independent contractor psychologists in one of the biggest CIA torture suits that we've had so far in Salim versus Mitchell. Yeah, and I would say this one's not really in the mainstream sort of public awareness space right now. People aren't paying close attention to it, but it really is a a case that seems like it's got more legs than others in terms of putting before a court the question of interrogation techniques oh, in the post I mean, 11 period. It's going to trial. Yeah, that's pretty much going before the court. That, that's something new and different. Although, yeah, although, well, we'll unpack the details in a moment. The, the court, it was certainly a plaintiff-friendly ruling. Um, they did lose on their motion for summary judgment too, but the action was on the defendant's motion. Um, that doesn't mean they're going to win ultimately on the torture claim itself, no, but, this is, but they've this gotten is, this closer is, to Anyone else, right. right? That's right. And so we'll talk about we'll, we'll talk about both why that's happened and why I guess I'm not popping my my accountability champagne just quite yet. Oh, that that may be the title right there. Accountability champagne. <laughs> popping the, popping accountability the accountability champagne. champagne. <laughs> um, speaking of accountability champagne, so we had this really, really, really highly pro- publicized press conference with the attorney general on Friday, where, by the way, he took no questions. Um, we have to talk about the definition of press conference, where he announced <laughs> that he had tripled the Justice Department's efforts to prosecute leaks and might revisit uh, the sort of historical reticence to prosecuting or at least subpoenaing reporters. I think, you know, Bobby, a lot of this to me is to satisfy the constituency of one uh, and not necessarily indicating a change in policy, but certainly there's stuff to talk about there. Definitely so. And I think the key is what you said about prosecuting or subpoenaing, which could lead to prosecution. That's where the action is on Jeff Sessions and his press viewing. Let's call it a press viewing. Press viewing. Come, like come view me. Come. You can even have your cameras on. But you can listen too. Uh, 
And then uh, we had this brief report. Uh, I think NBC News broke the story that uh, a Pentagon official had said that maybe the United States would consider using uh, lethal air power in the Philippines against Islamic State targets. Uh, to, you know, as far as we know, that hasn't happened yet. No decisions have been made, but it's got the internet's all uh, a, a buzz, fun, a buzz, a Twitter, a, a Twitter, if you will. And so we'll talk about you know what we think of that from an AUMF perspective and UN perspective. I, something tells me we're going to have the same conversation about that that we've had forty-seven times already on this podcast. It, ke- it keeps us in business. Uh, um, there Although, was, yeah, sorry. Go also ahead. out on the West Coast, we had a Ninth Circuit opinion uh, in Republic of the Marshall Islands versus United States, and this was a, in in some ways, just sort of a simple, easy case. Not surprising at all that the not court, not really national security, more foreign relations. It, it's foreign relations, but since it touches on uh, nuclear uh, preserving, the, the case is about whether the United States is in violation of its treaty obligation under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which has in Article 6 an, an obligation to seek in good faith to negotiate nuclear disarmament. Um, and so the Marshall Islands, who've had more than a little bit of nuclear activity over the decades on, on their territory, their complaint saying the United States isn't well, trying in good faith to their, disarm. Their territory. To negotiate disarmament. Our territory slash, yes. yeah. Indeed. It's, it's complicated, especially if you've seen season two of Man in the High Castle. Which I have not. Oh. So, spoiler warning but for you. The Marshall don't, Islands don't. actually figure prominent, prominently in one of the last plot arcs for of, reals. of season two. So that's not in the book. I've read I've read the, the short, I guess, is it a short story, a novella? Short, I think it's yeah. a novella. But also, Bobby, the, the just any, any excuse to talk about the Marshall Islands means I get to talk about my favorite piece of completely useless trivia. Oh, it, so the Marshall this is Islands, a long list you're choosing from. It is. Uh, Marshall Islands, one of three countries for which the United States is the principal postal carrier, <laughs> right, because of the Compact of Free Association. So the Marshall Islands, if you want to send a letter, right, to Majuro, um, it's MH is the postal code, right? Oh, that's awesome. Um, or Palau is also in the U.S. Postal Service system or the Federated States of Micronesia. So this is something that they all negotiated for during, because you know I, that's what I would be holding out for. Put mail, <laughs> mail. The, the services of the U.S. Postal Service. Well, actually, I mean, they're, you know, so so I, I tease. They're actually the Compact of Free Association is actually a bunch of U.S. domestic programs that these three countries are uniquely privy to accessing as a matter of domestic as opposed to international law. So it's it's a really fascinating area. All right, so we've got a real foreign relations law episode going on. And that, and that, we, that leads us to Westeros. <laughs> that will lead us to Westeros. We will save that to the end. Why don't we jump right in with Salim V. Mitchell, the the, uh, the ruling, I thought, was it the Eastern District of Washington or Western? Western, District? I think. Western? It's Judge Quackenbush. Yes. Uh, so Judge Quackenbush is ruling on cross motions for summary judgment under Rule 56 in a case under the Alien Tort uh, statute in which uh, oh, I stand corrected Eastern, Eastern District yeah it's in Spokane I guess yeah. so uh, Gonzaga there you go and and the uh, plaintiffs you've got two uh, I believe one Libyan one Somali guy both of whom were in U.S. custody in Afghanistan after 9-11 um, and, and they say subjected to various forms of torture, and then also the estate of, of another detainee similarly situated who had died. Um, they're suing the two psychologists, uh, uh, Mitchell, Mitchell and, and Jessen, Jessen. right? The, who, who, if you follow the stuff, these are familiar names. These are the guys that uh, were contractors for the CIA to develop the enhanced interrogation techniques. Right. And develop them, and then oversee and then according to the plaintiffs actually real and according to themselves right they have a book about this uh, really do, hands they do, they do have a book right and they made millions of bucks doing this highly controversial figures and now they're uh, they're defendants and this was their attempt they'd already lost on motions to dismiss on a motion to dismiss 
This was an attempt to end the case at the summary judgment stage. Steve, what were some of the issues that the court actually, what are the doctrinal issues that got an airing in the opinion? Sure. I mean, so there are questions about whether they were entitled to some kind of derivative immunity, right, as a basis because they were working for the government in this context. Right. So whether if the could... government's got sovereign immunity, hey, we were just working for the government, let's have us be cloaked with the same complete immunity, absolute right. immunity. Right. And that's one of the things the court said, not so much. Um, this case has always been sort of surrounded by the specter of the state secrets privilege, Right. Yeah, it did. But, I, I, so, of course, you know, I always look straight for that in these cases. It doesn't seem to have come up yet. I guess we'll see. Well, I think the reality is that the, the plaintiffs have been very careful to litigate as much of this case based on the public record as possible. Yeah. The public record including the executive summary of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, um, so-called torture report studied to the CIA rendition detention interrogation program. And, of course, now these guys have their own book out there talking about so what the they book, did. So the book has not helped them. No, that, well, it certainly, it certainly doesn't help you claim things can't be talked That's about. That's right. And also, I think a lot of our listeners may have seen the really interesting video interactive the New York Times did mm -hmm. um, interlacing deposition testimony from this case where actually there's uh, Mitchell and Jessen and Jose Rodriguez um, and also one of the plaintiffs recounting their what they remember, what they don't remember, their roles, et cetera. So wow. there's been a lot. I mean, one, one of the things that makes this case unique is just how much public information has surrounded it really from sort of from all sides. Well, and that's the Achilles heel of the state secrets privilege. Even in its strongest form, it's no defense if there's been this much waiver. Now, I guess, so So I, I've always been a bit circumspect about this lawsuit. Not because I don't think it's really important, not because I don't think if the allegations are true that Mitchell and Jessen should be held accountable, but there is something odd to me about the specter of these two poor little schmucks. Um, I think I can say that on the air, um, right? Um, I'm not sure poor is the right word well, for these guys. I don't mean poor in the financial sense, <laughs> but that, that these two schmageggies um, are the are no the idea what that <laughs> means. The more Yiddish I use, the the this safer is, I am. This is getting great. This is like the story from last week about the Facebook robots that started communicating with each other yeah. in a language that we didn't understand. Steve, they're going to pull the plug on you, just like the robots. I mean, they or else they're going to become self-aware, and then you know, as Terminator Two foretold, we're all doomed. Steve just reached singularity. Seriously. All right. Um. So so I, this case has always struck me as a bit of an odd note, right? Not because, as I was saying, Mitchell and Jessen, if the allegations are true, shouldn't be held accountable. And shouldn't be liable, but because it would be odd if at the end of all of this, the only two defendants to ever lose a case arising out of post 9-11 torture is two independent contractor, private psychologists who contracted with the CIA and not anyone who was more directly involved in orchestrating or carrying out the program. Well, in further to your point, I guess the one other case I can think of would be David Pissarro, who very early on, a contractor who- Who was, court, was, a who was prosecuted. Yeah, he was prosecuted in North Carolina. It was yeah. a complicated case. I don't remember the particular details, but I think that would be consistent with your thesis. But I guess my reaction is that that just, you know, doctrinally, is that what you would expect with a, a system that privileges the government through sovereign immunity in so many ways? Whereas, as this opinion really illustrates, uh, if you're a contractor working with the government, you are not not protected to the same extent. Well, listen, I think it's certainly a valid summary of the current law that it is just easier to obtain a damages judgment against a private contractor than it is to obtain it against a government official or the government itself. There, there's just no question that's true. Yeah. I, I would push back somewhat on the suggestion that, to me, some of the doctrinal, some of the holdings that have gotten us to this place where it's been impossible to recover against government officials are to me not necessarily convincing or defensible, right? Like I don't think, I and, and more to the point from a normative perspective, you know, 
do we really think at the end of the day the government sure, should no, never no. be accountable and the yeah. private guy should be? Like, it just strikes me as a weird place to end up. So it may be coming out the way that the doctrine would lead you. Maybe. But, but you're not happy with the doctrine. Now, in this case, they had they had made a bid for the, the big prize, which would be absolute immunity derivative yep. of the government. They didn't get that. The court didn't say they won't have immunity. They suggested it's going to have to be qualified immunity. And there's – on the facts that would matter – um, they don't have undisputed facts favoring them. Right. So this can happen sometimes. I mean, right, you can have a, a sort of run-of-the-mill damage suit against an officer where whether the officer is entitled to qualified immunity does depend upon facts that have to be found by a jury. Right, exactly. So so they may yet be fine from their perspective, but who knows? They're going to have to go to trial to find I, I, out. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I realize it's a limb, but I'm going to yeah. go on a limb and say – um, I think that getting to trial is exactly what the plaintiffs and their counsel wanted in this case. Oh yeah, no, I would imagine I would imagine that's right, and, and that and that this doesn't augur well for the defendants. No, it's not. It's certainly not good news for them. It's they they haven't lost their chance at qualified immunity, but it's by no means locked in for them. Uh, they definitely lost out on their second attempt to get it basically rejected on political question yep. grounds. The court basically said, look, we've already ruled on this. This is not something that we're going to dismiss on those grounds. And we haven't seen a super aggressive effort. To, I mean, we talked about state secrets, right? We haven't seen a super aggressive yep. effort to invoke it here, perhaps because of how much information is in the public domain. No, that's right. So what else What else does it leave? Well, they, they made a different attempt that was specific to the cause of action they're facing here, which was uh, uh, an alien tort statute mm-hmm. claim. They argued it shouldn't be applied to them on extraterritoriality grounds, which leads to sort of an in-the-weeds Fed court see what looks like a circuit split, if I'm reading this not right. Only is it, not only is it a circuit split, it's a circuit split in which I am co-counsel on a pending <laughs> cert petition. Like, what? You're, you're on all these cases, and I'm not on any cases. And which one of us is happier? That is an interesting. Actually, <laughs> I think we're both pretty happy. <laughs> um, what's the line from uh, uh, George Washington says to John Adams? And now I'm fairly out, and you are fairly you in. You are fairly See in. See which one of us is the happier. Or in a, you know, uh, as George the Third puts it in in the musical, uh, "Good luck." <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so there isn't. So, so the Alien Tort Statute, which we don't talk about, I think enough on this on this podcast. It's actually a really important mechanism for enforcing human rights norms and human rights laws, um, at least in U.S. courts in some cases. Now, the Supreme Court in the Kiobel case in 2012 um, limited it somewhat by basically saying that the ordinary presumption against extraterritorial application should apply at least mostly to the alien tort statute, um, which means basically that for sure if you have a foreign cubed case, foreign plaintiff, Foreign defendant, foreign soil conduct. Foreign cubed. I like that. Thank you. It's not yeah. mine. No, um, it's good that I'm going to use it. Right. Um, that a foreign cube case has no business being in U.S. courts. The circuit split has a well, Right. Can I just comment on that? I think that that makes a ton of sense, right? I mean, why should our courts and our system be the just sort of the repository for the rest of the world with no connection to the United States to come in and nonetheless come to our courts? So it's not no connection, right? I mean, the plaintiff has to be here. The defendant has no, to right. be here. I'm saying like, personal jurisdiction. Right. You, you need some connection. So but so here's the thing. I, I guess it, it, I don't mean for this to devolve into a fight over the alien tort statute. Um, I do have a problem. I'm with, trying to I, sidetrack I, you. I, I do have a problem. Trying to cause with, trouble. Yeah, that's fine. I do have a problem applying a st- presumption of statutory interpretation that's wholly a creation of the post-World War II Supreme Court 
1789 statute enacted at a time when Congress could not possibly have been thought to be worrying about such things. You are such an originalist. I know. But leaving that aside, so the circuit split <laughs> has arisen over cases where there is some connection to the U.S., so right. perhaps of a, a U.S. corporate defendant. Right. Um, or as in the case I'm involved in, the Adhikari case, um, a U.S. corporate defendant on a U.S. military base in Iraq on soil over which the U.S. has exclusive control and jurisdiction. Yeah, these these sorts of cases seem very different from the sorts of cases that I'm referring to a moment ago that, and that tend to be the things people think of when they think, wait a minute, why are our courts being right. used to deal with this person who may have been grievously harmed, but who's, you know, from country X, yeah. dealing with country X, never been here, but oh, that person passed through and right. got served process at JFK Airport. Right. No, no, no. I, listen, I agree with you that they're different, right? Yeah. We'll say for another time whether that difference is enough to kick out the foreign cube cases. Indeed. But at the very least, when you have more of a connection to the U.S., right, I think it's harder. And so the circuit split, which I think is not going to help Mitchell and Jessen because the Ninth Circuit is on what is, in my view, the right side of the circuit split, um, is that as long as there is some meaningful connection between U.S. soil and the defendants and or the fact pattern, yep. um, that that's enough. The Fifth Circuit, right, the Federal Appeals Court for Texas and Louisiana and Mississippi, in the Adhikari case, my case, said no, the ATS is wholly territorial. That, and so where, where does the, okay, so the, the easier, more generous test, the one the Ninth Circuit embraces here, or, or rather Judge Quackenbush embraces here, but it, I think it's the Ninth Circuit test if I read the, the opinion right. Is. This is the touch and concern where you're, you're looking for a, a, a real connection. Yep. Um, that's different from a, a more strict position you might call a focal point type test. And I think one of the doctrinal frameworks they yep. refer to was yep. a focus test. Which is the Second Circuit. That's the Second Circuit. And then the Fifth Circuit goes whole hog and says, look, it's got a ju- that's more the foreign cubed. Um, so the, the Fifth Circuit is more like um, f- even foreign squared is out, right? The Fifth Circuit is some substantial part of the tort, because remember, the, the statute says a tort committed in violation of the law right. of nations. Some substantial part of the tort has to take place here and or the defendant has to be here. Right. Okay, so that, that's the, it's, it's an interesting contribution. And, oh, sorry, really, and then the Fourth yeah. Circuit, right? So, so actually, the most progressive view is the Fourth Circuit. Right. Underscoring our earlier point that the Fourth Circuit is not your, your parents' Fourth Circuit anymore. And also in the torture case, right? So the Fourth yeah. Circuit in the Al-Shamari Abu Ghraib case actually took the broadest view of the sort of continuing extraterritorial approach of the ATS after Kiobel. And so one of the things that we're arguing in our cert petition in Adhikari is, listen, Somebody's got to straighten Someone's this out. Someone's got to straighten this no, out. No, I agree. I, as, far as, as far as the abstract question of, is this one where the court, Supreme Court ought to intervene? Sure sounds like it. Well, so, go read the, the opposition that was filed yesterday, and then we'll talk. Oh, interesting. And, if, right. you have, and if you have ideas for how we should reply, I'm all yours. <laughs> I, I just think that if there are any students listening to this, here's your note topic. Go forth. Right. Yeah, although there, there they could been, move on you while you're, there while been you're a writing. There are few notes on this topic. I imagine there have. I think there was a Harvard note in the spring about the ATS after the, t- the touch and concern test. Anyway, so the ATS is not a problem in Mitchell and Jessen because we're in the Ninth Circuit, which is more permissive, and because— And there's a clear touch and concern here. And these are U.S. defendants at Guantanamo and Afghanistan, yeah. right? I mean, no, like, that, seems, that seems pretty easy. I'm not surprised yeah. they lost on that yeah. one. Um, interestingly, so the ATS, you mentioned it's got to be a tort, right? One, one of the few things that's clear about— What's in and what's out under the ATS, I believe, is torture's in. Yes. Whatever torture is, that's where we fight. But torture as a category is definitely something you can bring. That's that's always been sort of the first example people give when they talk about what you could sue under, in theory, under the ATS. And this comes from the Supreme Court's 2004 decision, a case called Sosa versus Alvarez Machine, where the court basically says, listen, we're not really sure exactly what torts are encompassed under the ATS. Certainly not every violation of customary international law, but also not 
no violations of customary <laughs> international law, right? And those are the, the competing... Right. The polls have been rejected. Right. Um, and so instead, the court gravitates toward what I often teach as, although it may not be a perfect description, the so-called use Kogan's norms of international mm. human rights law, basically... Right. stuff that's really clearly established and, and, and you non-der- really can't right. derogate from Non-derogable. Yeah. That's the key, right? That, that yeah. every country is bound by it. And I think, you know... Even if we quibble about what is and isn't torture, everyone agrees torture, right. properly defined, is such a norm. Right. No no one's out there saying like, well, actually, like, you know, even when it is torture, under certain circumstances, go for it. I mean, well, there well, are people who argue right. that. Right. No one, no lawyers no, are arguing this as legally. a description no, of no one's the saying, law. No one's saying it is legally right. appropriate. Right. Morally, we're, we're on the same page there. Right. So then what's really interesting is uh, this long opinion. I dug through it because I wanted to find, you know, are they going to weigh in? Right. They, they talk descriptively about the allegations about waterboarding, et cetera. And I wanted to see, is, is the court going to go ahead and say, like, by the way, if these facts are proven at trial— these, this is torture. My read of that section is that the court kind of lists a bunch of things and then just says, basically, we'll see what happens at trial, right? Kind of walked you know, up to it. I can't blame Judge, I mean, Judge Quackenbush. I mean, I think, you know, he's, he's got a tough hand here, right? Because he doesn't want to prejudge things for the jury, right? You know, the jury instructions are going to matter a lot here. Yeah. And, you know, once, once we get there. You know, that's a point for any uh, students who are listening. Something that I didn't really pick up in law school as much as I should, but I learned it very clearly when clerking on the district court in New York, um, the instructions, in in many instances, the place where the contested legal issue really gets ironed out in a way that matters most, it's when the judge or perhaps the clerks uh, get involved in crafting those instructions, which of course may then get reversed on appeal. But that's something you really got to look for. And in this case, that's where a lot of the action is going to be. Totally. It may be that the facts as to what Mitchell and Jessen did will be pretty much undisputed. Indeed, a lot of a lot of the opinions based on that. Totally. The question is how to interpret that. Couldn't agree more. All right. All right. So why don't we pivot to, to leaks? Leaks. All right. Apparently, we're cracking down. So people, I think it's fair to say, a lot of the internet freaked out. What does this portend? Uh, a lot of discussion about whether this means you're going to see. Well, what exactly? I think there, there are two basic things for reporters to be concerned about here. Right. And they're very different. Right. Now, if it, there's there's reporters, and then there's Leaguers, people that have the information that are sharing it with reporters. Obviously, one of the things that was said very clearly was uh, FBI already has been directed to ramp up and put more resources into investigations. When when the intelligence community community makes referrals about uh, apparently unlawful leaks, there's going to be <laughs> much more resources devoted towards following up on them. Although it's not, I mean, I should say, it's not clear that a lack of resources was the problem historically. I mean, That's know, right. the yeah. Obama administration, much to its criticism, right, um, was the most aggressive in bringing leaked prosecutions of any presidency in American history. Yeah, and it didn't necessarily get them much. Well, no, but I guess the point is just like, it's not like they were being shy in comparison to their predecessors about pursuing these cases. Well, the perception of this administration is definitely that the, at the top level, the attorney general in particular, and also the White House, that at the end of the day, anything that would get near the media that the prior administration was going to back down at the end of the day um, and that they want to sh- they want to at least be seen to be leaning in a different direction. And as well, you noted or, earlier, or we'll more see. The point, more the point, the attorney general wants to be seen by the president to be leaning in a different Indeed. direction. Oh, I, I think he's on board with this one. I don't think he's just humoring the bus. I think he's probably. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, how much of how much of President Trump calling out sessions over the last couple of weeks was about yeah. like being too weak on leakers? Look, I think I think if we give there's there's sort of the theory. We talked about this before with Trump giving sessions. By the way, leakers like President Trump. Well, it, it, that raises the question, what counts as a leak, right? <laughs> they did uh, it again today. Right. And this, uh, you know, the unfortunate reality is when the president wants to share this stuff, um, 
So I, I don't know. I, I'm not trying to agree with that. Like so so practically that might be true, but legally, right? I mean, if right. the president. So the that's right. If he's you're right. If if he decided just to out the names of a bunch of uh, undercover operatives, uh, he's, right? He's violating the. In, in le, unless you think unless you think the criminal statute can't be lawfully applied to him for constitutional reasons. Um, uh, but that'd so, be so kind I mean, of a hard case to make that he could do that. I mean, the president right retweeted the story this morning right from Fox um, about U.S. spy satellites detecting North Korea moving anti-ship cruise missiles. But did right? he say RT not equal? Uh, uh, and, the, <laughs> and, and Fox and the Fox story was based on anonymous sources leaking classified national security information. Right, I know that was a no so, doubt a White so, House so directed here, here's deal. Here's the problem, right? Like the problem is yes, the president has unilateral authority to declassify. I think we agree on that. Yep, no the question. The president has unilateral authority to read into a classified program anyone he damn well bloody likes. Right. Right. Um, right. But that's not what he's when, when the uh, assume for the argument the president is. Uh, let's go back to the the Oval Office conversation, right, where he tells the Russians it was the Israelis, right? Um, is he therefore declassifying that piece of information? Is he therefore reading the Russian ambassador to the United States and the Russian foreign minister into? compartmentalized U.S. foreign intelligence, or is he just telling them something he didn't actually mean to formally declassify? Yeah, these you could get wrapped up in formalities, perhaps, in this context. But, you know, taking the, I think the best example to prove your point, I think, is uh, uh, undercover operatives' identities. Yep. And it, it's not the same thing as declassifying a fact. I don't think it's the same thing at all. No. It's that, that identity is a classified fact, but... The president to say the president can just declassify your identity and out you, especially when, that, especially when that, especially when the protection for that identity doesn't just come from executive order. It comes, comes from, from a statute. statute. That's the key. I like, agree. That, that presents a category three still senior right. type. So, so anyway, so to get back to sessions though, right? So so you were about to say I think that when we're talking about leaks and reporters and the concern about the Justice Department interfering with the freedom of the press, there are two different avenues to worry about here, right? One is the subpoena avenue. Yes which is when the government can try to compel a reporter to disclose his or her notes, to testify before a grand jury, right, to otherwise cooperate in an investigation. Right. Disclose the sources right. Reveal at the, the bottom source. of that. Right. And um, also related to that, uh, going to, say, the phone company to get the reporter's call record. Right. And so I, actually, I think part of why the leak investigations tip, ticked up in the Obama administration is because we technological improvements made it less necessary to go get the reporter's cooperation to figure out who the reporter's been talking right. to. Right, you can go get the metadata. But now, that works. Now, of course, and of course, it's like anything else. There's an offense development. There's a defensive right. reaction. I'm sure a lot of the more savvy reporters have taken steps accordingly. Well, this is what, right, PGP keys, right, right using right. signal, using encrypted, I mean, all of the above. Right. But it's, not a, it's, the same, it's the same reason early on I heard the story about the White House, uh, you know, demanding everybody bring out their phones yep. and people are going to look at your phones here in the office. Except the president, who apparently is still using his crappy old phone. All right. So, um, <laughs> but, and then, and then the sort of the nuclear option is prosecuting a reporter directly for criminal conduct vis-a-vis the leak. Right. So the, basically there's the contempt of court for not telling us who your source is, but there's the wildly more controversial and never yet done example. The former's been done. Yes. The reporters have gone to right. jail for protecting their sources. Right. Judy Miller, Jim Judy Risen. Miller's a classic case. Yeah. Uh, 85 days. Yep. Uh, but then there's the, the line that's been hinted out in connection with the Assange case, yeah. but it still has not been pursued even as to him. Charging someone as a co-conspirator in the leak itself, right, or indeed as a direct as a principal, right, under under seven, which would be even more dramatic, right? right? So, so that's never been done either. And so here's my reaction. So Twitter sort of freaked out on Friday when Sessions had his non-press conference, press conference, his press viewing, viewing as he called it, um, right? So my reaction is. Um, 
this is much ado about nothing until they do something, right? Like, yeah. so um, Attorney General Holder issued this memorandum, I think in 2013, 13, yeah. right, that, del that delimits the circumstances in which the DOJ is allowed to subpoena a reporter to try to investigate the identity, to compel the, the disclosure of the identity of the source. Um, there's no indication from Friday's whatever that that memo has been rescinded, right? There's no indication that there is a forthcoming either indictment of a reporter or you know, subpoena right. slash contempt proceeding slash jailing of a reporter. And so I'm not saying that's not going to happen, but that's the news, not what Sessions goes out so, and says. But would, wouldn't you agree that they were actually, it wasn't just atmospherics with his boss in the White House. This was an attempt to, frankly, generate a chilling effect to try to deter both potential leakers and to put a little bit of fear and caution into the reporters themselves. Uh, sure. I guess I'm just saying, like, I don't see this like, to me, what happened Friday was not a change in policy. Yeah, no, no question. They haven't changed the policy yet. But let me add on that policy. So I th I'm of the opinion that policy is basically symbolic. What it what it basically says is um, investigators should not resort to subpoenas to reporters unless they've exhausted alternative, less intrusive means. And no one's getting anywhere with this until the attorney general personally signs off on it. And it's got to be really, really important to the investigation. And you think that's just symbolic? I think that G as given how many given, episodes we have of like line U.S. attorneys going off the going off the deep end a little, I think that with this attorney general, yeah, since he's the one that access the personal check on this, yeah, whether you keep that policy in place or not, it's. Do you, I mean, do you think that Jeff Sessions is going to say no? Yes. You think he would say no? Bound by this policy, will shoot since it came. No, to no, no not, not not bound by the policy. But listen, so so the reason why I tweeted about this on Friday, right? I don't have like any. This is not like I have not become a Jeff Sessions convert, right? This uh, is, yeah, I'm starting to think we're, no. we're, we got to change sides of the desk. I think I'm sitting on Steve's side of the desk. This ah, is... no wonder what happened. <laughs> um, I'm not like all of a sudden a Sessions convert. I just think that there are so many strong institutional reasons, wholly apart from the politics of the moment for why DOJ is averse to litigating the full scope of its authority to either subpoena or prosecute reporters. And so, you know, Sessions may have all kinds of reasons to want to appear tough, strong, whatever on this topic. But the Justice Department as an institution has lots of reasons to, to sort of honor the terms of the Holder Memo, whether they're enforced or not, to, to make sure that you're not crossing that line until you absolutely positively have to. I totally agree with that, but it's partly why I think that the, the guidelines themselves don't actually matter. It's the underlying institutional incentives. Yeah, so I think they matter in one respect. They don't matter to Sessions, right? Right. They matter to the line AUSA. Right, so so a line AUSA who's really like, who's, do you want to bother the AG with this? Yeah, yeah, no, right? I, I grant you that you're there, right, right about th that. There are career implications to that, like a a create like you know how did we get, remember the Bond case, the chemical weapons prosecution, right? Um, that happens because a line AUSA is like, ooh, I can charge her with violating the chemical weapons implementation statute. So I think it's not so much the career risk; I think it's just the sheer bureaucratic weight of trying to yeah. elevate something to the AG. All of the above. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, so I'll say. Wait and see. Wait, it's an important yeah. moment, but I'm 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 holding out for some actual sign that there's been a shift in emphasis in policy. Agreed. Okay, so third item, <laughs> we do a quick hit on this. NBC News reports yeah. that um, there's there's a lot of talk about the possibility of ramping up U.S. support for uh, counterterrorism operations in the Philippines, and then in a in a very brief statement, at least according to what was reported, an unnamed senior defense official said, or or maybe it was a, a service, uh, maybe it was a general who knows, saying that we we are considering using lethal force or airstrikes in uh, the Philippines against Islamic State targets. No decisions have been made. Um, my reaction is, 
if this were to happen, I have no doubt people say, ah, Trump's expanding things again and asserting new authorities, how dangerous he is. I don't recall people saying that when the Obama administration extended the authority to use air power against the Islamic State in Libya, or at least I didn't see a big groundswell of support, but you're signaling me that perhaps someone did object on that ground. I, I, I know one or two people who objected. Is there any, anyone in this room? At least one and a half people in this room, I think. <laughs> Wait, there's a half person in this room? I'm a, I'm a big guy. All right, there you go. <laughs> um, listen, of course, right? I, I mean, but I guess my question to you is, is this any different from the same conversation we're having about the Islamic State and the AUMF in every other part of the world? No, I think, obviously, there's a political difference every time there's a new country that enters the list. We all appreciate that. In this case, this apparently would be one that doesn't actually give us any interesting new UN charter-type sovereignty issues. Right, because I'm sure Duterte is like, hey, whatever. Uh, he's like, you want to blow some people up? Just, you guys hey, aren't so bad after all. If you hit some of my guys while you're at it, that's fine. I, I, I did I did read this morning, uh, you know, when Tillerson was there with him and uh, some reporter shouts out from the back, did you discuss human rights? And apparently the, the first thing out of Duterte's mouth was, quote, human rights, son of a bitch. That was his <laughs> quote. Um, so that's that's hey, that's he's, pretty he's powerful. Blunt. You can't you can't deny him that. Well no, there is that. So I don't think you get a UN charter issue. It it's just it adds to the it's another straw on the political weight that the AUMF is carrying. But which, my which own, by the way, the last version of which we saw Rand Paul trying to make noise about holding up the NDAA because he wants some Oh that's not going anywhere. Of course uh, not. Yeah. But but right we're back I mean this is you know Yeah back to business as usual. Yeah. Entirely predictable. All right so we'll see what happens there. Watch that space. Speaking of business as usual, treaty non-self-execution. <laughs> yes. I would describe this as a classic business as usual opinion and only interesting because you and I like to dig into the weeds. And, and there are some there are some fun little gems I want to highlight. Well, and because I love talking about Micronesia. Micronesia. Well, Micronesia comes up in the context of Republic of the Marshall Islands versus the United States, an opinion by the Ninth Circuit that dropped. And we mentioned, last week. Yeah, and we mentioned in the opener that this was this was a pr- entirely predictable rejection of Marshall Islands' claims that perhaps courts could enforce a provision in the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in which the United States and other parties to the treaty said, we will engage in good faith negotiations to, towards a nuclear-free world. So, so what I find interesting about this case is there's actually a, a surprising amount of treaty law in U.S. courts, right? But it's rare, at least in my experience, to have a case where it's a foreign sovereign suing the United States, right? Like private parties, sure. But here yeah. we have, like, I mean, so replace Marshall Islands with, you know... John Marshall. Well, or, right, maybe you shouldn't say John no, I was Marshall. I going to say Thailand. Right? Ah, okay. Right, like, you know, we, th- we don't really think of the Marshall Islands as a foreign nation. Yeah, yeah. They're a foreign nation. Yeah, yeah exactly. We just have special relations. That's right. Well, we spe- so do we do with the United Kingdom, too. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, so you know, that makes us a little odd, although perhaps only a heavier thumb on the scale against justiciability. Yeah, that's right. They, they tried to use that, and I think cleverly, try to say, look, all these, all these doctrines that fend off uh, litigation, that's because you don't want private parties doing it. But these are supposed to be con- basically contracts between sovereigns. Right. We're so here we are. We're not a third-party beneficiary. Yeah, exactly. We are the, we we are are the, the direct, direct party. Yeah, and uh, and the court basically said, like, actually, that's just more reason why this should be dealt with on the diplomatic and international plane if you can find some international venue. So, so separate from the specific question, which is whether Article 6 of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Agreement is non-self-executing, might help, Bobby, if we spend a minute talking about the difference between self-executing and non-self-executing treaties and why that matters so much in U.S. Absolutely. courts. Absolutely. It matters hugely, Huge. right? Huge. Now, you've, you've written about this some. One thing I love about this opinion, and, you know, when I think of that topic, I think of Carlos uh, Vasquez. My at, co-author. Your co-author uh, at Georgetown, who's written a ton on this. And I think everybody agrees is sort of like, the, you know, the, the go-to guy. person. Oh, man. And whoever, whoever either the, 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 
judge who wrote the opinion or the judge's clerks. They were loving them, some Carlos, because I I can't, there's four separate uh, Carlos articles in there. Cited like each multiple times. Yeah, it's awesome. And and actually, you know, it was the whole opinion. I still still get excited when I get like a random, like stray site to one piece once in an opinion. Oh, I I don't get that much. I certainly have never had this level of citing. It's like practically Orrin Kerr levels of reliance. Uh, Uh, Whatever they sent me, it's buttsy. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's great is, um, so Carlos is also like one of the leading people you think of in our, in, among the academics who do foreign relations law, but a lot of our other friends are in there too. And it's kind of fun to see all these, I mean, they've, you know, uh, Ona Hathaway, right. David Sloss, uh, Mike Ramsey. Yeah. I was, you know, Kerr Bradley, I think was in there, but somehow they missed Jack. Uh, but it was like, the, Shonda. it was like the well, section, there's that yeah. ASL section on foreign relations yeah. law or yeah. international law in U.S. courts. It's well. like, it's like they just kind of went through the list. All right. So, so the, let me sort of the, the theory behind self-execution and non-self-execution is that not all treaties are equal, right? That even though the Constitution refers to treaties, period, and treats them as the supreme law of the land, right, on par with federal statutes. I mean, so much so that right that as in a conflict between a treaty and a statute, the last in time That's will right. win. It's every bit is it's every bit as much supreme law of the land as a statute, right? Um, and yet, right, and yet the Supreme Court in different degrees, really since the 1880s, has drawn the distinction between a self-executing treaty, which does not require so-called implementing legislation to have immediate effect and to be privately enforceable, and a non-self-executing, non-self-executing treaty, which does require domestic legislation, which is otherwise not directly enforceable. That's right. And, and this is a creature that reflects what we call the dualist nature of our system. Some states, some sovereigns have a monist system where it's, you know, international law, domestic law, they, they don't draw these kinds of distinctions. We do. So it's logical within our legal order to say that, yeah, we violated that treaty and we are simultaneously okay despite that as a matter of our domestic law. But on the international plane, yes, we're in violation. And now, well, what are you going to do about it? You can diplomatically pr- uh, protest. And, and to me, the, I mean, the most interesting piece of Judge McEwen's opinion is she actually weaves together the non-self-executing doctrine with the redressability prong of Article Three standing and with the political question, excuse me, doctrine to suggest that they're all doing sort of similar work. Yeah, I thought that was actually kind of right? cool. So, so did I. But, th- but that requires a really important insight about non-self-execution that is a rel- of relatively recent vintage. So before 2008, I think it's safe to say, although if Jack were here, he'd disagree, but I think it's safe to say that the prevailing assumption was that a non-self-executing treaty was not privately enforceable in the sense that you could not sue directly under it, right? that it did not provide a cause of action. That did not mean that it could not be enforced through an otherwise existing cause of action, right, where Congress had said, for example, that, uh, take the habeas statute, right, that you can bring a suit if you claim that your detention is in violation of the laws, constitution, or treaties of the United States. Um, That was the argument before 2008. Then the Supreme Court, uh, sorry, you, you were about to disagree. I was going to say, Jack, Jack's not here, but I would, that's not my sense of it. Certainly, that is a major school of thought. The, it's, it's not the, the non-self-execution it's doctrine. It's about a cause of action. About causes of action, as opposed to rules right. of decision. Right, or, sub, or substantive rights. Yeah, yeah. Right. right. Either and, way. But I think, that, I think that even before 2008, there was a substantial body of opinion around the rule of decision model where it's just, you just can't use it 
in a domestic court setting. It's only something to be complained about diplomatically. But I guess I guess that goes back. So so Article Six of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Agreement is probably not a great example because it's a it's a good faith negotiation obligation, right? Yeah. It's even if even yeah. It's almost it almost feels like a distraction to right. go so far in the weeds on right. non-self execution right. with something so obviously it Except, doesn't have. Judicial but, but we don't get that many good opportunities to talk about non-self execution. Exactly. Right? That's why we're doing it. And, and and this really came up in the context of the Geneva Conventions because the Geneva Conventions are are not nearly as how shall I say hortatory, right? They're not nearly yeah. as like. Well, there's some parts, but there's plenty that reads like an ordinary. It, it reads like right. a, a, an enforceable. It doesn't present a redressability issue necessarily. Yeah. Right. Or a, or a sort of a clear sort of political question insofar as lack of judicially manageable standards. And so it matters a lot whether you because it's generally agreed that that's non-self-executing. But the question is, does that mean you can never even refer to it in a judicial setting? Right. Or just that you can't have that be your cause of action? Right. That, right. That, Big that, difference there. It's a huge difference. And so about 137 years ago, I wrote a comment in the Yale Law Journal. You're called, like a Highlander. How old are you? <laughs> uh, you know, Methuselah. Um, so uh, uh, called non-self-executing treaties and the suspension clause. Um, or basically argued that, like, listen, if non-self-executing treaties are still for purposes of the supremacy clause, treaties, right, then it should stand to reason that they should be enforceable through habeas or else you're going to have a suspension clause problem. I mean, that's, look, the uh, the supremacy clause has always stood as this big problem for the rule of decision interpretation, the broad interpretation of so non-self-execution. until, right, until the Supreme Court in 2008 in the Medellin case. So in Medellin versus... Texas, right? Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Big time. Um, right. The or I, I was many versus Dredke or many. I don't remember who the respondent technically was. It might be like the yeah. warden of the Texas. Right. It was about us. It though. was Texas. Yeah. Um, it's always Texas. Um, so in Medellin, right, the Ch- Chief Justice Roberts, um, I think for a five-four court, if memory serves, basically holds um, that no, non-self-executing treaties are not treaties for purposes of the supremacy clause. Right for all this, you know, and so sort of goes whole hog into the right. Um, not strong, strong rule of strong decision. rule of decision yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, distinction. Right. So so my paper became irrelevant after that. <laughs> well, you never know. Doctrine changes. It yeah. could come back around again. But I think that's right. You know, one little bit. This is a complete just a little bit of trivia. But one of the footnotes, uh, footnote eight in this opinion, I thought was so fascinating. Obviously, McCune also thought so. She wrote that. Uh, look, I, there was an amusing exchange when. Uh, when the treaty was being uh, approved by the Senate, in which Senator Fulbright and Senator Tower went back and forth about, you know, what would it mean? Let's say there's an emergency and the United States really needs to transfer a nuclear weapon to the hands of an ally for some, you know, exigent military need. And and basically the, the response from Fulbright was, yeah, well, you know, we violate the treaty, so be it. You just violate the treaty. Kind of reminds me of Al Gore, you know, apocryphally telling President Clinton about renditions when when Clinton says, "Hey, Al, what do you think? This uh, might violate international law." And Al Gore supposedly said, uh, "You know, that's why it's covered action. Go grab his ass." It's sort of a just sort of a, a laughing sort of acknowledgement that there's no real enforcement mechanism if you violate it. But then what's interesting is that according to the footnote, Tower then said, "So if you're." Uh, if, you're, if what you're saying is what I think you're saying, we should treat this treaty as a, quote, scrap of paper? And Fulbright said yes. Now, I, I'm not sure if the court in highlighting the scrap of paper reference appreciated the historical uh, reference there. But that, of course, is is clearly by Tower. He's referencing the uh, Beth, Chancellor Bethman Holwig's World War I uh, shocked statement to, to the Brits when the Brits said that they were going to go to war over the violation of Belgian 
Belgian neutrality. neutrality. Right. And 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 Bethman Holwig said, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna do this over a mere scrap of paper. And that's become sort of this phrase that symbolizes the idea that of having scorn for right. the relevance parchment of, barriers, yeah, as Justice Scalia would call them. Especially with international but, but law. I, so so not to de- dig even deeper into footnote eight, um, but if you'll permit me. Please. So, so then Judge McEwen says <clears throat> this dismissive view of the treaty which strongly supports the principle that its provisions are not self-executing, is, of course, legally incorrect vis-a-vis the Supremacy Clause. And then she says nothing more. I don't think that's right. Like, so, here's the, so here's what all I'm trying to say about this case, yeah. right, is that one of two things has to be true. Either non-self-executing treaties are treaties, in quotation marks, for purposes of the Supremacy Clause, which has all kinds of implications for the ability to enforce them defensively, if not offensively, right? Mm-hmm. Or they're not, and you know. In which I, case, she's wrong in, in that her this final is line. Right. In which case, and, and I had always taken Medellin, for better or for worse. I yeah. think very much for worse as saying they're not. In which case, this is not a legally incorrect view of the supremacy clause. This is exactly what you get from concluding the treaty is not self-executing. I, I think you're right in that assessment of what's going on here. I think that her opinion is not kind of the Roberts Medellin style approach right. to this, but more of the classic. Look, it's just not a rule of decision. That's right. And, and you're, yes, it's still supreme law of the land, but it's just kind of tough tickets as far as the court I, system I, I, is I, I concerned. I think that's right. But so so not it, it's not dispositive here because the Marshall Islands would have lost anyway. Exactly. That's the, that's the funny thing is all of this is just almost academic because it's so obviously not a provision in the treaty that is capable of judicial enforcement. No, no, but I do think, I mean, listen, I, you know, students who come to law school with some exposure to international law, I think we're always surprised to find out just how difficult it is to enforce international law in U.S. courts. You know, the non-self-execution doctrine has a lot to do with it. And I think it's hard to put into real terms just how important Medellin is in fully endorsing the broadest view of a non-self-executing treaty, right? Which is, yeah, it's a sort of, it it is a scrap of paper, right? Um, Right. And, well, not, and not much more. I, and I guess I would say, though, maybe inconsistent with what you just said, I, I think this is a reflection of how even if you don't have that, because she doesn't, in the opinion, really embrace the power that Medellin right. gives her and instead takes more of the traditional sort of, maybe it's less defensible logically, well, this but is, it's more familiar. Because the nuclear nonproliferation, because the nuclear nonproliferation agreement is an easy case. Right? Yeah, exactly. Because if you could have gotten there with right. standing, if she were, says. If this were about the Geneva Conventions. It'd be different. Like, do we really think that when the United States ratified, wrote... And then ratified the Geneva Conventions. They thought that they were creating this totally, you know, precatory, non-binding thing. No. No, they thought it could be enforced diplomatically. Did you? You don't think that they thought it was then going to be used as a rule of decision in U.S. litigation, do you? Um, if they did, if they didn't think that, then why would Congress in the Military Commissions Act have specifically had to say you can't do that? You mean in two thousand six? Yeah. Well, that's a lot later, isn't well, it? Well, so if we're talking know, about what they thought in nineteen forty nine. Like there are treaties that make this really hard. No right. doubt. And this of course, is not one of them. we've been mentioning Geneva, but moving away from IHL towards human rights right. law, the United States the in the age of human rights law treaties always includes express non-self-execution statements. All right. I think we've we've done our duty to those who actually speaking, want to hear about of, the speaking law. Speaking of non-self-execution, should we talk about some dragons? <laughs> Let's do it. My friends, if you like Game of Thrones but are not caught up, now is the time to say goodbye. But before you say goodbye... What are you, you're listening to our podcast instead of watching this week's episode? I agree. Bad decision. Bad, bad life choices, bad my friend. Decision. All right. All right. And let's assume now we're all ready for spoilers. Spoilers. Steve, what'd you think? I thought that was a pretty good episode. So, so let me, I have a couple of off-the-cuff reactions. All right. About 20 minutes in, I was like, what the hell is this episode about? Yeah. I was, I was getting kind of bored. Right. I was like, okay. Character development. And so, so when I paused for a second to think what is this episode about, I was like, oh, 
something really big is about to happen. Yeah, yeah. And, and then if you start, I, I had the same reaction, and you're like, God, there they are. They're kind of slowly moving the money back. The, the big clue, of this course, what, is what is what is what Randall Tarley says. The gold <laughs> is safely through the walls. As soon as she says that, you're yeah, like, like uh oh, oh, they're all screwed. Well, that, but also, I think that the first big clue is when the, when the banker is talking to Cersei and just you know laying it on thick. It's like her, it's like her happiest moment. Uh, he gives her the Wait, ultimate no, you compliment. Mycroft. What's that? Mycroft. Is that his name? No, the actor who plays Tycho Nestoris is oh. the <laughs> same actor who plays Mycroft on Sherlock. Oh, I not in a million years would have drawn that connection. I watched Sherlock. I'm impressed. So no, sorry. So so that's some foreshadowing. Right. No, he said he says, look, you know, this is great, but then he pauses. Of course, that's a, when the money gets when here, and gets you're there. like, oh, I see where this is going. <laughs> and it was only a question of, like, okay, so why won't the money be getting there? No, but it got there. Right. Well, the gold. The gold. He said the gold's the gold, inside the walls. The gold got there. Right. But, nothing but else. The food didn't get well, there. Well, so this is so so this is this is I think a fair point of criticism for Danny's military strategy, right? Which is, so you want to conquer the seven kingdoms and you just incinerated all yeah. of their food. Winter's here. Winter's here. Mm, mm. Yeah. What are we gonna eat? I, well, it is interesting. Well, like, I guess yeah. there, I guess so there are, did, I guess there are now a lot of horses to eat. I would I would say it's not so much her strategy. Was that too it's soon? literally oh gross. It's literally her tactics, right? Because yeah. she is she is in the most practical sense a combat tactician in an aircraft delivering ordnance <laughs> in the middle of a battle. Now her infantry or her, sorry her cavalry is clashing with infantry. She's got the only air, air power. power. It's devastating, and she uses it air superiority. Some. You might say it's 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 total dominance, and she's she's using it some to help her cavalry. But mostly she's flying around blowing up the baggage train. Well, wait a minute. Aren't, aren't you about to capture all that? Don't you need that? Why are you blowing this up? I, listen, it's the, thing, so, so there, it's the thing I understand second least about this episode, right? Which is why her, why her target would be the supplies and not the Lannister soldiers. I mean, you know, she incinerates plenty of Lannister soldiers too. No, but why didn't she fly in and incinerate them first? Why did the yeah. why did the cavalry even charge? Well, there is a lot of her forces well, died wait, for no wait. reason. Well, let's go. I mean, hey, let's go back to the Battle of the Bastards, right? Why doesn't Sansa tell Jon that the Knights of the Vale are coming? Right. So, and the answer always for all, all of this is for dramatic effect. Of course, it's a TV show. All right. So speaking of for dramatic, so so you know we've talked before about the various suspensions of temporal and geographic disbelief that must accompany season seven. Yeah, she clearly found a wormhole for her for her cavalry. A wormhole or a warp drive or I mean She got she got the Dothraki and their horses from Dragonstone all the way over to the Reach. Or yeah. Right. I mean, so so keep in mind, right? Um in the time it took the Lannister army to get from High Garden to the Reach, Danny found out about High Garden marshaled the Dothraki, put them on a boat, or a, th- a lot of boats, got them to wherever the water is closest to the Reach, and marched them onto the Reach. Wait, I need to pull up a map of Westeros to decide, is there some land route she possibly could have taken? No. <laughs> I, listen, I think it's... Well, listen, it's a good thing the magic navy of Euron Greyjoy didn't show up and sink her where, I know, where, where, where was their secret radar technology? I know. So, so, but Bobby, I mean, there's a point here, right, which is the show creators clearly had, the runners, right, clearly had a choice of having a 10-episode season seven 
where a whole lot of time would have been wasted right, on transportation. Right, 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 right. Or just saying, you know what? We are no longer, like, you know, to hell with keeping the timing yeah. and geography. We're having honest. fun here. We're having fun here. Yeah, and, and I think that's totally fair. Uh, it does. It, it's consistent it with my theory. Away, it takes away a little bit. Well, it's consistent, to your point. It's consistent with my theory that what's going on here is the gradual. It's not a full-on Hollywoodization of Game of Thrones. But, they're, they're but it's, definitely, it's definitely a lot less hard fiction like, classic. I feel like I feel like since the Knights of the Vale showed up at the end of the Battle of the Bastards in season six... The show has been placating the fan base in ways that it never sought to beforehand. I know. It's an interesting question. Like, is this the way the books were supposed to? Maybe one day, although I'm a little right. skeptical, I mean, maybe at, one I mean, day will. I mean, look at all the John Danny stuff that was happening beforehand. Oh, yeah. Okay, can we talk about that? That part is, is <laughs> I think, the scene with the cave. Well, before the cave, right? There's the Masande, Danny, like, you know... Um, many things. And Daenerys says, yeah. many things? Yeah, that, that was some good fun. They're definitely, you know. Innuendo. Uh, I think they, they've toned down the sex on the show a little bit from earlier seasons, um, it, which is interesting. I don't know how purposeful that is. It's not nearly as, you know, the f- first season in particular, they were going for a lot of classic HBO shock value. Look what we can do with yeah, HBO. Yeah. They're Although less did, focused when did, on that. When did now. Grey Worm and Missandei hook up? Was that, was that earlier this season? That was, I think, one episode ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, that was you know sort of graphic, but it could have been a lot more graphic by Game of Thrones standards. Anyway. Or, or not, depending on because of Grey Worm's you know. Well, exactly. I was well, I was wondering if they were going to go there, <laughs> but they did not. Uh, let's talk about the. Ultra convenient, higher, uh, you know, cave art. Uh. So, so here's what I'm thinking. If I'm Daenerys, right, aren't I at least a little skeptical that John <laughs> didn't just make all those things himself? Yeah, right. I mean, that's you know, first of all the the initial set of cave art drawings, the the spirals and yeah. all that, whatever that's supposed to signify. Yeah. Um, you know, pretty primitive. And you get to the back, and there's like this pretty good representation. Oh, the white, of the, well, like, the, the, right, yeah. the, the children of the forest apparently were very good spelunkers. Man, they just were very good artists when yeah. it came just to the White Walkers and the yeah. Night King. Um, How convenient. I know. It just really and, and, and apparently, Jaws an archaeologist now. Well, it just would have been funnier if they'd had, a, you know, Daenerys at least like kind of look over to check the fingertips of, you know, Jon Snow and, and Sir Davos to see, uh, you know, is there chalk on <laughs> But Daddy says, I will fight for you, right, if you bend the knee. Yeah, yeah. Well, she needs some allies, and she needs to get him on board. And if I only, think, Bobby, if only there was some way of uniting. Without him having to fully give up. Yeah. Yeah, I know. If only she were willing to make some major sacrifices. You know, Cersei was kind of maybe marry Euron Greyjoy to get a hold of his mighty navy. Yeah. I wish we could think of some way. Some I, I'm at a loss. Yeah. I, and so this raises the question we've been uh, discussing this whole series. Are, are, they, are they just setting the fan base up for a good slapdown? Or is it really just going to kind of unfold in a much more sort of fan-satisfying, semi-predictable way? I don't know. But, I, I mean, you know, I, I wonder if at the end, like, John and Danny's almost going to be a distraction. And, like, the real question now is what's going on with the Starks? Yeah, they're, they've okay. Let's talk about the Starks yeah, in the. Let's the move north to ultra Winterfell. ultra awkward reunion. <laughs> I loved the scene where they 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 demonstrate uh, Arya's uh, competence. You know, oh, we've the, not the Arya, gotten, the Arya Brienne scene is fantastic. Yeah, they haven't really let her cut loose, and I hope she, I think she had fun as an actress doing that scene. I mean, the the poses she went into were wonderful. It was a great scene. The look on everyone's faces, they realized like, oh my god, Arya completely kicks ass now. Um, and Although I'm not quite sure what to, how to process Sansa's look. 
I'm not sure that they didn't give us a strong direction on how she's taking all right. this. But let's remember, she's already had the much more, surely much more disturbing encounter with her other sibling, Bran, well, so who's right. rapidly unfolding to be a total, totally interesting character. Well, douchebag, but maybe he's, you know, he says, I'm not Bran. <laughs> like, quit quit measuring me by what you expect I'm Bran so much to more. Do. Which, by the way, so, you know, one of the popular fan theories is that is that Bran is all of the Brandons, right, throughout history. Oh, right? I hadn't heard that. So, like, Bran, like, Bran, um... If you go right, so so if you play things backwards in season one, right, when Bran is recovering from his fall, Nurse Dad, right? Yeah, they talk about Bran the Builder. Right? Bran the Builder, right? She tells the story. She tells the story about the White Walkers, right? right? right. Like and like apparently, like the the working theory is that everything she said in that story is true. Right, right, of course, yeah. And that, and that, like, you know. And that he's supposed to. So that's the positive theory, that he's, like, this avatar of human goodness, the brands of his Goodness slash, you know, strategic superiority. Right. So that that's the theory, that and, he's and, going to turn into this, like, all-powerful strategist to give him some. And, uh, and by the way, the, the line he drops on Littlefinger. Oh, that was awesome. Chaos is a, Chaos ladder. Is a ladder. Like, I don't, so folks may not remember, right? So that comes from, I think, season Three right it's a conversation with uh, with Varys yeah. in the in the throne room. Chaos is a ladder. When no one, well, because because right, Varys says like chaos is like something bad. Yeah, right. He's like Varys's motivation. These this was supposed to be this sort of clash of archetypes. Right. Varys is the force of Anti-chaos. order who wants to preserve the people because chaos gets people killed and right. starved. And, and, and Littlefinger's like oh, chaos is a ladder. Yeah, right. It's brilliant. Um, but but of course only Varys was privy to it. So yeah. so in that moment, Brad's like, hey, Littlefinger. I'm omniscient. I'm on you, buddy. Yeah, yeah. But there's another fan theory out there. Although he's not omniscient, right? Because he didn't actually know Arya was coming to Winterfell. Well, he has, he seems well. He is plot convenient, selective omniscience. <laughs> uh, what about the theory that Bran's actually in some sort of weird loop of time, going to turn into being the Night King? I could see that. Just I think that's based just sheer weirdness of yep. how he's acting yep. now. Yeah, yep. uh, they obviously have some kind of cosmic connection. Yep, quite. Um, um, Bran could be the Night King. Um, you know, there's now this whole there's the whole theory about like does Jamie Lannister is Jamie going to become the what the prince who will what's the what's the line the prince who will save no the the prince who will oh gosh I'm, it's Azor Azai but I don't remember what the what the the translation is is this is this a uh, the, the the one who's going to kill Cersei and like restore peace and all that okay so like at this point like is is he ready to turn yet yeah, now this begs the question is he dead or alive he's not dead you know, how could he be dead they, First, they would they would show him actually dying right in some having him die off way. screen would be pretty lame no. No, no, uh, and also like, why would you bother having the the knocked off his horse right. bit? Just let him get, you know. Tested no, so there. Jamie's not dead. The qu- the two questions are, how traumatized is Jamie by his? Um, uh, yeah. Fe- does he just go off and sentence. say pox on all of you, or does he go back and try to kill his sister? Or and how traumatized is Bronn? Right, because now Bronn, you know, Bronn spent the whole episode being like, dude, where's my castle? Yeah. Dude, where's my gold? Um. Braun basically just you know got uh, survived a near death experience. Yeah, Braun Braun's a pretty awesome character. He's definitely on the danger list because he's a minor beloved character. <laughs> uh, so it's hard to see how he, he's stayed alive as long as he has. But he was great in this episode. So, so forgive me. Did anyone we actually care about die this week? Mm. I mean, a whole bunch of Lannister soldiers. Sorry, yeah, a bunch of Dothraki. Oh God, you don't think Ed Sheeran was in that fight, do you? You know who was? <laughs> a who? Noah Syndergaard. Uh, what? Noah Syndergaard was an extra as a Lannister Get soldier. out of here. He was. That's when, when do we... If you're listening, showrunners, Steve and I are available to be extras. <laughs> we will. I'm actually taller than Noah Syndergaard. You could make... Steve, you'd make it... What, I think you should be a wildling. A wildling? Here's, here's a question for any listeners. A giant? What, what type of role would be best for Steve and for me <laughs> if we could somehow get cast <laughs> in Game of Thrones? 
Bobby strikes me as like a, a Bob, Bobby strikes me as a as a as a lord as like a a Tarly cousin. A, a, a Tarly. Well, okay. I was about to say like I'm not sure I really like the Tarly Tarly connection there, given that Lord Tarly's such a jerk. But his son actually was. They were Dick definitely. On. Dick. <laughs> great Jamie actually yeah. <laughs> that was great but you know they made him they did a good job of that character yes and I think that's I think not Braun I think Dickon's the one who knocks Jamie off the horse and I think the way he survives really? is they're both in the water and by the way do you notice the horse is running in like six inches of water yeah. and when you get knocked off your horse you fall into like what apparently oh, no, is no, 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 50 no, feet no, deep no, no, drop off how that water so deep it will, hopefully we'll learn next right. week I think Dick you you're going to see Dickon, like not Braun I think it was Dickon and he's going to be down there like you know valorously unhin- unhooking Jamie Jamie's armor, and then he drowns. Well, it's and, not just the armor, but the but the hand, the gold hand. The gold hand. Yeah, and so he's going to let go of his gold hand and abandon symbolically his his Lannisterness. Is that I, it? Maybe. I mean, what's what's? I mean, right? I mean, Casterly Rock is gone. Anyway, all right. What's the point of it all? All right. Um, the only character we haven't talked about yet, Tyrion. Okay, what about him? I the scene right where he's standing there watching the battle yeah, and where, the, where the Dothraki says to him, "Your people don't fight well." And where he watches his brother like yeah. almost get killed. And he's like, "Those are your people, Tyrion." Like, something interesting is happening because because Tyrion to me is the hero of the show. Like, you know, I know Danny and John are like no, the no, protagonists. Sam Tarly, Sam. Okay, Sam and Tyrion, right? Like, Sam and Tyrion to me are like the 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 focal points of all that is good, right, about Game of Thrones. And I just, I don't know, Tyrion. Tyrion seems to be having a little bit of a crisis. Well, it could be that they're trying to set you up to appreciate, and he's symbolizing for all of us what it means to really see the dragons in operation. In a world that has no air power whatsoever, suddenly there's this. And it's it's horrifying. It is. And, you know, they go out of of their way not just to make it fun to watch for our our violent culture to kind of appreciate, like, oh, look at that guy get toasted. They really make it pretty horrifying, showing you a lot of the suffering of the burns. And the guys, guys, like, diving into the water to try to, like, the fire down. And and you see see all the major characters that are present. blown away. Yep, yep. Well, all but one. Danny doesn't seem to mind. No, she's not bothered at all. The Dothrakis aren't bothered. But both Jamie and Braun and, and Tyrion, Tyrion are all really upset by yeah. what they're seeing and realizing yeah. what's going on here. Well, and so and so, I'm sure that the runners didn't mean it this way. But in that regard, allow me to note the ironic timing. Uh, the Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Yeah. So this is I I, I strongly recommend the the uh, the podcast the Citadel uh, dropout. Is it that, <laughs> that Spencer so. Ackerman does? Because Sunday for, was the 72nd anniversary of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. Yeah, and and they note that on their podcast. Um, and talk about the the analogy between the the dragons. Are they a strategic weapon? That's where it fits. Yeah. Um, it's it's a little bit easier to see them more as just completely utter dominant air power against a, a foe that has no air power to speak of and mm-hmm. manages to mount one ballista that got off two shots. And now you know it would have worked ah, better for Braun if Allah. But by, by the way, when did Braun go to ballista training? God, he's good at that he's for a guy who's that. never done that sort Seriously. of thing before. Like. Kills the Dothraki guy and then, like, you know, reloads in one motion and pivots across, like, two axes. The Dothraki, getting the Dothraki guy with the first one was great. He kind of calls out Terminator 2 because yes. the way that guy just was walking calmly to stalk him. And you're like, there's nothing you can do to stop him, Braun. You're, oh, unless you get him with your air, anti-aircraft <laughs> weapon. That'll do it. Yes. Yeah. Well, the other thing is also that I think what we're seeing with the ballista is um, you, can t- you can fire an arrow at a dragon but unless you're a Kyburn shooting at a stationary target, the chances are going to hit him in the brain. Right. you got to get the eyes or the mouth. Or if it's or Lord of the Rings, um, you know, and he's missing a scale and it's smog and he's missing the one scale you need. Yeah. All right. But I, I think I think Kyburn's going to come back and say, huh, can't guarantee you have a head hit, 
Well, let's dip all of these arrows in poison. Oh, that would have been smart. But that won't be photogenic for a TV show, right? True. Right. But I think, I mean, if we're going to the next generation of, oh. of anti-dragon yeah. aircraft technology. Well, the real lesson, of course, should be, like, you can't, you can't swoop in over King's Landing tomorrow without expecting to get shot at a lot. And your dragons I, I mean, how many ballistas are there? Yeah, well, how hard would it be to make them? Or scorpion. I guess they're called the scorpion in the Game of Thrones. Yeah, same difference. Um, I, I, you know, how hard are they to make them? I don't know, since time doesn't seem to matter on this season. Like, we were living, I mean, things happen, you know. That's true. They could be, they could fast forward. Now, the, the action. Mean one million ballista. The action's clearly going to switch over uh, to the north in the battle with the White Walkers, which is bound to be the season closer, right? Some big time defeat for the forces of the living. Oh, I think it's not the season closer. I think it's I think it's the penultimate. Cuz you know the penultimate episode is often where all the really really horrible stuff happens. Right, so that you could then have the I think I Well, think, I think the season could end on a really horrible note. True, but I, I think Tormund and his and his gang are about to get overrun. Um, no question. Someone about put that. out online, I you know, I I really I try to pay close attention to the opening credits and I always miss the things I'm supposed is this to see. Is the ice thing going on the, the ice, wall thing? Right that 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 if you really have been paying attention apparently the sea around Eastwatch by the sea yeah, is frozen. now showing up as frozen. Right cuz the cuz the ice is coming down with winter, right? And so, you know, how useful would the wall be if the white walkers can just walk around it? So if you were in charge of the defenses of the North, could you melt that ice with like a consistent burn effort? I mean, I, if only you had some kind of aerial device that could deliver <laughs> a constantly high temperature on a discrete body of land. Or global warming. Well, clearly winter has come, so, you know. Yes. I mean, but like, right, if I'm, if I'm John, right, well, I, right, I know, apparently no one knows about this yet, but like... Assuming that I knew about this, I'd be like, listen, Daenerys, great job at the Reach. Let me just borrow your dragons for a quick second. I want to yep. go melt all the ice next to, next to Eastwatch by the sea. Yep, that'll help. And then I'll come back and fight with you. Clearly they're not going to do that, though. they oh, got a no. battle coming. Yeah. All right, I think we've beaten this one into the ground. Quite like the Lannister army. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah not bad. All right, um, so I guess, you know, barring urgent developments, we'll be back same time, same channel, this time, August 15th. Please uh, give us a review on iTunes. Please uh, give us a follow on Twitter, at Steve underscore Vladek, at Bobby Chesney, and at NSL Podcast. And tell your friends. Yeah, spread the word, please. And after you've talked to those two people, tell everybody else. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Adios.